Hi, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. Uh, returning back to our episode of authentications, also determining fakes and frauds in period furniture. So we're picking up with the, the last episode. Um, to, tonight I'm going to talk about labels, inscriptions, and attributions to start off with. Labels meant to be glued to furniture are rarely dated and usually have a decorative border on all sides. Bill heads are not labels, designed as the top part of a sales receipt. They were not meant to be glued to furniture. They are dated. And as a bill head is only part of a bill, they have no decorative border. The cautious collector does not accept a bill head as a label. Never be distracted from a thorough inspection by anything, including documentation. <laughs> so don't be distracted from it. Um, one of the, the nicer labels comes from uh, William Savory. He's one of my favorite, maybe the top uh, third furniture maker in the 18th century in Philadelphia. Just a beautiful label. Uh, I don't recall um, totally what it says, but in the center of the label... I said, uh, I think it says period furnishings built for the the cultured and the affluent by William Savory. So when I was building uh, furniture, my shop was in the 90s and I had uh, trained a few craftsmen. We adopted that that saying on our label. So Um, for experienced buyers in the antique market, though, an identifying mark or document rather than solving a mystery adds to it. It doubles the doubts, broadens the investigation, and increases the assignment because both furniture and mark have to pass scrutiny because the client pays for both the object and the documentation. Check both. But let's go back. Very few pieces of furniture ever have documentation of a maker. The makers had to have been huge, huge. Uh, Something comes to mind... um, Looking glass is made in Philadelphia by the Elliott family. You know the Elliots, they have a certain style of label that they put on the back. And even in Philadelphia by mid-century, mid-18th century, uh, you would have had retailers putting their labels on. So some un, uh, you know, some uh, Tyro type collectors would, would assume this was, uh, you know, if they said it was Joe Blow's, uh, Joe Blow's place or something, they're assuming that Joe Blow made it. Not so. It was the retailer. So retailers may have picked a catchy name or something and put labels on the furniture. And uh, so so labeling started very early. And that's quite deceptive with clocks also because you have generally no label on a clock case. But yet the dial is labeled. So when the dial is labeled, it only designates who made the mechanism and the dial, not the case. And that's why all long or tall case clocks are marriages from the get-go. So as long as documented items bring higher prices, as they should and always will, documentation will surface and adhere on them. The challenge for the authenticator, then, is to distinguish between the honest documentation from the deceptive. Identifying problematical attributions. 
the most common false identities occur in attribution, usually verbal or made without benefit of any documentation. Attributions may be to a particular craftsman or to a particular place of origin um, of either type. They're routinely and cavalierly offered because they add value, much, much added value. Misattribution is an egregious pitfall. Yet fear, fear it has never daunted the owners of objects, antique dealers, brokers, auctioneers, or consignment shopkeepers. And I must add here, you know, um, being an authenticator, a builder of furniture, a conservator, a store, I never trust anything an auctioneer says unless he has absolute ironclad documentation. It's my estimation, whether it's the firehouse on the street corner in, in the small town auction, or it's coming from Sotheby's or Christie's, I believe nothing an auctioneer says. Auction houses are nothing more than businesses or you know, sole proprietors that act as an auctioneer strictly that sell, resell used stuff. One may sell stuff that has a better value than another, but it's no more than a and they will say anything, anything to sell that used stuff. And typically I go in and if uh, an auctioneer writes in his description that the object was made in, uh, you know, uh, 1970, um, let's, let's, let's say something else. If the auctioneer is telling you it was 18th century, Typically, I would say it's 100 years newer. It was made in the 19th, uh, 19th century. If he said it was made in the 18th century, I never believe them. They're just there to sell you stuff. So beware. And anybody going to auction, read all the fine print. Because, uh, I mean, I could go on and on with these pitfalls of these uh, sideshow stories. Um uh, <clears throat> I've had uh, at least two clients in my career. One was with a very valuable clock, and the clock could have had street value, uh, retail replacement value of $700,000, $750,000, and he did not read the fine print when he signed to consign to the auction, and he ended up making nothing on this clock, twenty-some thousand dollars twenty-five, twenty-six thousand on it. And he actually paid me 22000 to restore it. And in the end, the auction house, which is one of the big two in New York, had a buyer for it. They knew exactly they bought they knew exactly who they wanted to sell it to. They sold that. So a French clock comes to me for restoration, $22,000 restoration. The client only sells it for twenty six with with commission, and it ends up selling from the auction house to a Saudi family in Saudi Arabia for over 200000 so, and So there was a lot more money to be made by the auction house without, without having to dole too much out to the consigner. So buyer beware when you deal with an auction house. So again, we're back to identifying problematic attributions. Attributions can be innocently inaccurate or intentional. The majority of misattributions are fostered more by a seller's wishes than by deception. 
Many times, misattribution is purposeful and enjoys cycles of fashion. In America, in the early 20th century, when federal furniture was especially sought after, emulated and reproduced the big names of the federal era, Seymour, Fife, McIntyre, became affixed with Boston, a furniture-making capital. New York and Salem furniture, respectively, also. The Seymours and Fife's had large shops, but they also had many competitors, spawning many of their own shops after apprenticeship ceased. McIntyre had a small shop and would have needed an exponential amount of additional hands to produce the carvings that, <laughs> excuse me, have been attributed to him. But we must, must remember when we talk about McIntyre, Fife, Seymour, I mean, to some of you novices out there, you think these are one-man operations producing this furniture. Fife, Seymour, McIntyre never touched a piece of wood. They were businessmen, and they owned furniture-making establishments. They had, you know, tens and twenties of, of fine craftsmen building their stuff. And remember, when we're talking about the federal area, just to add, this is the, the area of mechanization. There were table saws, band saws, crude as they may be, but these pieces were made with machines and finished off with hand touches. So just, just keep in mind that. Um, so uh, a marble, a Mabel, Mabel Swan published in 1931 evidence that McIntyre, as we just talked about him, attributions for the most part were actually executed by Boston craftsmen. Therefore, the majority of the finest carved work of federal Salem was not produced by McIntyre's hand. But this did not influence greed-driven antique dealers and auction houses to promote opposite the brainwashed collectors continue to conjure, conjure up in McIntyre's somewhat fallacious legacy. So, you know, again, I'm saying here that, you know, they, they, they throw the word McIntyre, McIntyre, he was a salesman. He he owned a he owned a shop that made the furniture. He also owned showrooms, so um, you know it's really the the craftspeople that made should get the attributions. But what happens when these craftsmen leave? They opened up their own shops, and then you see a piece at, at auction. Say, well, that's a McIntyre, but no, it was Joe Blow who worked for McIntyre. And he could have had 10, 20, 30 people that left him over a 20, 30 year period. And these pieces, you know, spring up all over. It's just like uh, George Nakashima. George Nakashima had many, many employees in New Hope, you know, uh, slab tables and benches and, and the like. And, and uh, you know, so if you're, you work for Nakashima and you start building out of your garage um, similar pieces and you get the right connections and you get someone to buy them and they get turned over again and again. They get into an auction for the numbers of the same size, same size as Nakashima. So this is fakes, frauds, and forgery. But it makes a lot of money for that independent craftsman working out of his garage who once worked for Nakashima. So our eagerness as authenticators to determine the validity of attributions is especially paramount today. With such a plethora of information be spewed on, line about attributions. Less positive information rises instantaneously with just the listing of a craftsman's name. So this is what the big ones, Sotheby's and Christie's, do all the time. They just put a name out there. 
and and it could look like it. So it's the deception is to get you to come in, to get you to bid by putting a name of a, of a, a so-called known or listed maker. And it may not be him at all, but at least they caught your ear and your eye and then you start to wonder, oh, maybe I could have that for that reasonable price. Um, less positive information rises instantaneously with just the listing of a craftsman's name, as I just said, leading to mostly false name leads of examples of his work being discovered. So strong is the penchant for affixing a name that it is barely stayed by the presentation of contrary facts, such that a name is not that of a craftsman or even the name at all. Um, and some other interesting things. Um, Wintertour was dealing with a, a, a game table, um, I think back in the early, early 90s. And they attributed, or Brock Joe, Brock Job did to the Garvin Carver. And then they started attributing other pieces to the, quote, Garvin Carver. And this particular game table was in a lead-lined box found in a Philadelphia building that was being demolished in the early 90s. And they were demolishing the building, a very old building, uh, 18th century building. And I guess the individual that was you know, operating the machine says, oh, there's a box. They went down and it was a card table, a wonderfully carved card table. My studio in the 90s made a couple copies of that card table, but that's not the point. The The point is, I guess, winter tour and all the powers that be that looked at it and they, they found some person they car, called the Garvin Carver. And, and then they started attributing some other furniture to this individual. But, you know, in actual fact, it, it could have been a shop. It could have been a shop with <clears throat> multitude of, of workers and craftsmen, and, and then they could have split off uh, on their own, and it could have come from one of their shops. So you just don't know. There's so much conjecture into um, when you're guessing who made these type things. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not good, but antique collectors like a good story. They like a good story. Give me a good story. I can repeat the story to my friend collectors, to my dinner party on Friday night. So they love a good story. A legitimate antique should properly be attributed to a craftsman or his shop only after careful comparison has shown it to be closely related to a documented object. The documented antique must have a genuine maker's signature brand label, or bill of sale, or be unambiguously cited in other papers, such as a journal or family correspondence. The accomplished authenticator will accept no attribution to a maker for an unmarked piece of furniture unless it can pass three tests. But again, I'm sorry I'm deviating out on, on a, deviating, uh, deviating here on a few other uh, examples. Uh, we, we talked about we have a couple people that were, were uh, you know, based in southern New Jersey. And, and they have this fetish, this fetish for pattern brick houses. And, and I mean, it's all nice. And, and again, a lot of these are clinkers. And, you know, they, they added something to the house. And it's, it's like this mysterious thing about how many people, craftsmen, could have been doing this. It could have been one family. It could have been a, a, a father with a couple sons going around in, in a, you know, a seven, eight, nine, ten mile radius 
and and they're they're masons and they're they're doing these designs and you you set up you make bricks on site and you get some clinkers that are dark ends dark broad dark broad faces and you say hey do you want a pattern we'll put your we'll put your initials in the house the date and, and a crown or whatever and and that's how these things happened and there was not a lot of planning and they they make like this big secret of how these these uh, pattern brick ends you know how they all came about but they're, they're not giving us any names of who was doing these things so so give us some more details everybody that talks about them and you know we have a couple people on instagram that just keep banging it and harping the same thing and you know we we they take a picture we look at a brick and my god there's a lot more to historic preservation and keep looking at the same bloody design 68 times in 40 days come on um there's tons of things we can look at and talk about Look at the variances of these podcasts that I'm putting up. So let's get back to to us. Okay, so the accomplished authenticator will accept no attribution to a maker for an unmarked piece of furniture unless it can pass three tests. It must be identical in construction to a documented piece. Two, the antique has proved to be genuine. Three, the said maker has identified to have been a furniture maker. The said maker has been identified to have been a furniture maker. Remember, a lot of labels and things like that or attributes of design, if you tie other pieces of furniture into that, doesn't mean he's a maker. He could have been a retailer. He could have been an interior designer in 1740. They did exist in Philadelphia. New York, Boston, Charleston, Savannah. Identifying construction is easy. Ascertaining dovetails, tool marks, drawer assemblies, etc. When I say drawer assemblies, how they did their dovetailing, the spacing, the angle. Also, how were the drawer bottoms made? Running side to side, front to back. What kind of grooves were they to receive the bottoms? What kind of materials were used to make the secondary applications? As far as the genuine goes, the object to, is to avoid being taken by such ploys as transforming the man that owned the furniture <clears throat> into the cabinet maker that made it. Too many people have said, Washington owned this. Washington stayed here. Washington stayed there. Um... I, I mean, I just, I just love, there's, there's a, there's a, you know, I mean, you, you would go to a place like the Centerton Inn in Centerton, New Jersey, you know, Lafayette stopped there, Washington stopped there. There's no documentation, no documentation. Where is it? And when you go in this building, this is the farthest thing from a colonial tavern. It's so oversized. There's nothing colonial about it. So, except a really great wrought iron sign in the front, which is not colonial, it's a reproduction, probably in the mid to late 19th century. So, But even the people that own it today, this restaurant, it's falling apart. Do they take pride in losing half the paint on the outside? I mean, they're not caretakers of this building. I'm not saying this building is a phenomenal building because it really isn't. There's no 18th century fabric in this building. It was actually on the Salem County House Tour a couple of years ago, and I thought, this is quite a joke to put this building on, but they did it anyway. So, 
extensive list of craftsmen, old newspapers, city directories, and published lists such as birth, death, and marriage records are available. Casual attributions are far too prevalent, so be aware. Again, for an attribution of an unmarked piece of furniture to be acceptable, the piece must be identical in construction to a documented one that is proved to be genuine and the mark has been ascertained to be that of a furniture maker. It's very difficult. What we're hearing here and what I'm reiterating here uh, in America, but yet when you go to England and to France, you see a list of the, say, the clockmakers, the furniture makers coming from the king. And if you can match this name up in the location he was building in, it's said and done. It's legitimate. But here, it's all helter-skelter. Um, very loosely structured, let's say that. American furniture makers started signing their work after the revolution. With this came a new economic condition. And the once ambiguous craftsmen, almost in an arrogant fashion, began applying the signatures and labels to vie for trade, participating in the new free market economy. Today, all of these types of identification have figured in fraud in some way. Leading and misleading inscriptions. The most important and exciting marks on furniture are inscriptions. Although there are exceptions, most all inscriptions are authentic. Authentic, but not necessarily ambiguous or informative. An inscription penciled under the drawer bottom, married in the year of 1810. These types of musings generally reveal nothing because the style and construction of the piece shows that it was fabricated well before that date. So there's a ton of antique dealers, pickers, even auction houses that will take chalk, lead, and draw dates on the back and the bottom of, of furniture and and, and hope that brings them better numbers. And a lot of this can be tested. They can be tested in, in the laboratory, in my laboratory, for the kind of lead that was used, would have been, have been used in that, and what kind of chalk was used. Um, so, even an authentic inscription can be a mystery, though. The most common is a simple, I'm sorry, a single, or just a last minute with merely a first initial. A solid but scanty clue. There could be 50 published names as such. When tracking that first initial, you must find it generally matches to the one in a large family of craftsmen. And how many times do we see even in the colonies that, you know, it could be the Willards for making clocks up in Massachusetts. I mean, there's a ton of them. And there was a ton of other families building furniture in the Philadelphia area. So, so you have to be aware. Was it the was it you know John Watson in in seventeen forty, or was it the John Watson in eighteen sixty five? Same family, you know, several generations in between. So, the ultimate inscription includes made by name, address, and date. Such as G. Perry. Philadelphia, 1947, 
All this information you could ask for, including the made by, which shows who the craftsman was, not the owner. Owners also designed their furniture as far back as the third quarter of the 18th century. As a result, owners of furniture have frequently been dubbed cabinet makers and so advertised and listed. Desks are typically prone to this in ink or pencil. Long case clocks are marked as far back as the mid-18th century by their repairers. Also, with these type of clocks, their makers are engraved or painted on the dials from about 1650 to 1740. And then it becomes difficult for retailers either started demanding their names, as we already talked about this, being put on the dials, or they would remove the craftsman's name and put their own name on themselves. And, and part and parcel is that there's a lot of clocks produced in the early 20th century. And you'll see, you know, John Wanamaker on the clock. Various kinds of clocks. You know, various other retailers in, in, uh, in Philadelphia. So um, <clears throat> they're all vying, you know, for their own reputation. But they're, they all could be utilizing the same clockmaker, but they're all putting a different name on the dial. So this happens. So around 1740, there seems to be a shift in marketability where towns and cities become more of a focal point for retail purchasing. Thus, some craftsmen have one less thing to worry about. In addition, these long case clocks were generally never signed, many times being made by local coffin makers when dying was slow. So, slow dying, high clock case and coffin production. It's a perfect combination. Long case clocks were marriages from the start. Case makers may offer three to four styles. Movement makers, possibly two. Dial makers, four to five varieties. Hence, the client and later the retailer would go from shop, one shop to another, mixing and matching to his liking. A second marrying sometimes occurred as British clocks made their way across the sea whether it be on sailing or steam vessel, the transporting of weights, pendulums, mechanisms, and cases at times got mixed up or lost by the time of reaching the final destination. And as crazy as it sounds today, this is so true. I mean, I, I had a case in point about 28 years ago, and I have a clock shop, and I have a couple young, some young people, which, you know, kind of my age, but they had no experience. So I said, uh, you know, I had six clocks come in and so you have the clocks and the, the pairs of weights, the pendulum and the movement and the cases. And, uh, you know, I said, you know, move them over here. So what do they do? They put all of the weights in one place, all the pendulums in one place and all the movements in one place and the cases in another. So look at that. So no different than that ship coming over to America with the British clocks and everything um, everything gets mixed up. So uh, not a good thing. So you really, really must be careful. So cabinet makers, when inscribing furniture, used ink or pencil or the marking chalk that was always on hand. When you find a chalk inscription in old script, make sure you're seeing what is actually there not what you wish were there.
the desire to find a craftsman's name can lead to highly imaginative misreading. And that doesn't let part of the inscription or other distract you from carefully interpreting the whole. So be careful about that. Cabinet makers generally mark their work with notes for themselves, such as upper back left and a plethora of dimensions, sometimes times and dates. In the last 25 years, this was common practice in my studio. One does not want to confuse the bottom for Boston when, de when deciphering chalk marks. Look for cabinet making notes and terms first. In many shops, the workers and apprentices would sign pieces and date them. It appears there was no standard in doing this, no similar script, size, etc. And uh, we're going to, a couple more subtitles here for tonight. I want to go over labels. So with regards to labels, if it is not possible, just go and take your knife and gently lift the edge of the corner of a label to see if the wood under it is the same color of the surrounding wood. If so, the label is a new addition. Wood darkens with age when exposed to light and air. Sometimes 18th century billheads with an emblem printed on the corner of the page. This could, could be cut out and used as a label. Also, an original label should show wear and fraying at the sides of the edges. Fresh cut paper can be examined under the microscope to determine its age and type of cut a slice or a ripping action. Labels exposed to air and light become brittle. Original paper labels, unless they are in a protected spot, rarely remain intact on furniture that has been in use for over a century. The wood moves, the glue dries, the paper may lift, and the edges become vulnerable to breaking off. When they do, the wood underneath paler than the surrounding wood because it has been protected from air and light, begins to darken. If bits of paper lift up and break off at different times, wood of various shades may show around the remnant of the label, with the lightest ones in the areas of the most recent losses. So, just a few more to go here. So let's talk about branding. Branded furniture until recent years has assumed to have been marked by the maker. Many men, primarily, primarily shippers, who in the late 18th and early 19th century performed the beginnings of America's international commerce, used branding irons and doored hammer dies to mark not only shipping crates, but most household items as well. An owner's name can enhance an antique. Sometimes by locating a town and suggesting an appropriate date for the furniture. <clears throat> a maker's name surely adds to an object's desirability and increases its price significantly. In some circles, the tendency is still to see a maker's name in each newly discovered mark. Old mistakes endure, though. Once an imaginary cabinet maker has been created, out of old, the whole cloth, he clings to life by every thread. In the 19th century, the use of maker's brands as well as stencils and printed labels become common. Many producers of Windsor's and other volume production chairs branded their work. 
most using a single initial and a last name. Try to ascertain if a mark is that of a maker or an owner looking for confirmation information. If the information you seek is not available in a printed source, contact an expert in the field. Um, there are many, and, and they're they are not generally hiding, maybe with the COVID virus they are, but just search the web. No doubt in the early 20th century, many an antique spire was sold a bill of goods when they when told that a bill of sale or the upper part of the one, a billhead belonged to the antique being sold. If a bill of sale is presented to you as an antique, be particular. Do not accept the cut a cutoff portion of a larger bill as acceptable documentation. The bill should be intact as a document of its age can be expected to be. Two, require that the bill have a solid history of the furniture. The latter must be traceable from the date of the bill. Number three, accept only a bill that is unambiguous, one that is clearly associated with the furniture it purports to document. It is so hard to prove that the bill of sale has not been in fashion in recent years. And as trends are cyclical, bills as documentation may return to fashion, engendering more doctored bills. And also be on guard for all fraudulent identification, be it in the script, label, or bill, or brand. Styles. Whereas today's collectors, such as the pristine early 20th century collectors, sought the unusual, equating the odd with the outstanding, they enthusiastically pursued unique examples and fell prey to altered antiques. Furniture craftsmen alert to the desires of customers for the, for the eccentric made an industry of making the irregular. So, when presented with the unusual, look around at rarity and migrate back to basic styles. <clears throat> I just want to add a, a quick story here. I was at a Brandywine antique show and I heard one of the, quote, bigger antique dealers about 15, 20 years ago <clears throat> trying to uh, explain this uh, secretary to a potential buyer. The secretary had a price tag of over 120000 on it. And he said it was made by a certain Philadelphia maker, and William Savory for General Cadwalder. And, and uh, you know, I know some of the secretaries that came out of uh, Savory's shop, what they look like. And it was very different. But he was trying to tell this individual that it was a, a custom or a commission piece. And that's why it's so different than anything Savory's ever made. And many times there were constant efforts to change these pieces to say that, this piece was made for one specific person, such as General Cadwalder. <clears throat> and this is, uh, you know, this is fallacious stuff and it shouldn't be done. Anyway, in, in antique furniture, rare pieces are usually pieces that never were. So the, the dealers and people who are brokering them say they were, they, were, and they were rare, but they never were rare. Genuine pieces fall within a period style or a design tradition. Each reflects the era of the area of its origin. Smart collectors look for the typical, and if they can afford it, 
for the extraordinary outstanding object that is the best example of design, but not to a deviant form of it. So therefore, look for the typical and stay away from the unusual. Greg Perry signing out, um, again, talking about authentication, fakes, frauds, and forgeries on period furniture. Thanks for listening.